The world is evolving at a faster pace than ever before. As we begin the path to recovery after worldwide disruption, this podcast explores how the design industry can adapt to changing expectations and create a better future for your businesses and consumers. I'm your host, Peter Marion, and you're listening to Create Tomorrow, the WGSN podcast. Well, the events of the past six months have created a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear as our lives have been disrupted across so many fronts. What we're seeing is an opportunity to refocus on the positive experiences that people have had through lockdown and could continue to do so as we come out of this crisis. Well, obviously, this is not to make light of the devastating and tragic losses that many of us are experiencing at the moment. But this break from life as normal is providing an opportunity for us to create a better, more optimistic future for our businesses and consumers. There has been this fantastic Arundhati Roy quote that has gone viral in recent months. She wrote, Pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. So today, we're asking what's on the other side of the gateway and how can we make sure it's something that we can be optimistic about? Now, before we begin, I want to caveat this episode by saying that we recorded this episode a few weeks ago before the global protest against racial injustice began and the Black Lives Matter movement gathered such momentum. We felt that it was still important to share with you our predictions around positivity, as from these horrors, there is hope that we as societies are now starting to unpack these systemic issues and build towards a future that is better for everybody. But we'll be talking more about this in coming episodes. I'll be joined in this by Francesca Muston, VP of Crashing Content. Hi, Francesca. Hey, Peter. What are you feeling optimistic about right now? I'm feeling actually quite optimistic about all sorts of things right now. I suppose I'm feeling optimistic mostly about the catalyst for change and about all the positivity that I think that that can bring. That's fantastic. And the other person that I'm joined by today is Andrea Bell, head of WGSN Insight. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Uh, fantastic. And what are you feeling optimistic about? I would kind of echo Cheska's sentiment, not to, to piggyback. Um, just really interested in, in what's happening and how all of this is really just kind of really shined a light on, on things that we can change and we can explore and kind of new ways of, of working. I think it can feel quite empowering in a way, right? Exactly, exactly. It's, and we're all kind of beta testing these large, large themes that we once thought were impossible or, or just not even achievable. Now here we are. Yeah, that's a really fantastic thing because one of the things that I've been looking at in some of the work that I've been doing at the moment is really around um, how optimism changes your efficacy. So basically, if you feel optimistic, you actually are, are driving change and, and are willing to sort of focus on long-term goals and short-term goals and your success in those sorts of things tends to be better. But um, Andrea, in your Future Consumer 2022 uh, report, which everyone loves and is one of the sort of flagship reports we put out each year, um, one of your consumer cohorts uh, were called the New Optimists, where you describe them as having a vivacious appetite to embrace joy, a brave choice in the face of uncertainty. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, I mean, the New Optimists, they're really fascinating. So they're demographic agnostic. They range from Gen Z through to boomers. But the real unifier is this kind of radical optimism, as, as I think we're all kind of 
touching on and explaining. But so whether it was Gen Z who are facing a critical amount of eco-anxiety or millennials just kind of struggling with the, the cult of productivity, this cohort has really said, you know, we're going to embrace joy as a backlash to consistent negativity. Um, and, and as we've said, and you may have heard on, on some other reports across WGSN, you know, being optimistic is a brave choice in times of uncertainty. And it's not always the easiest choice. And clearly right now we, we can see that um, in everything from, again, how we're designing fashion, how we're engaging with our consumers and even amongst our friends and, and colleagues. You know, it's, it takes a lot to be positive when sometimes it feels incredibly overwhelming. That's fantastic. And, and how do you see that kind of evolving out of our pre- present situation now and into the future What's fascinating is the, so the new optimist, when we started tracking this as a, as a team in November of 2019, we started to see a rise in celebrationism. And that's actually a system that exalts and kind of extols celebration, right? You know, it's a core focus of society. And what's fascinating is we started tracking it in November and it was small moments of joy. And we, we didn't want to dub it the celebration economy, but we could see it was an evolution of the experience economy. And the real shift was, or was the experiment, the experience economy, excuse me, was definitely rooted in doing things for the gram and going to concerts and making sure you, you know, if it wasn't on your, you know, Instagram, it didn't happen. This was kind of the opposite. This was, this was the experience economy rooted in gratitude, um, really having those moments of, of celebration with friends and family. And what's fascinating, and I'm sure, you know, Chess, Chess feels it as well, is we're seeing this so much more, you know, currently during the coronavirus around just celebrating everyday moments. So think about promotions where we're having to do things differently online. So, you know, we're, you know, excuse me, my dog's barking. Um, <laughs> apologies. Speaking of working from home and celebration, she got excited. Um, so whether it's we're selling birthdays or or weddings or engagements, you know, we're we're all in a in a moment right now where we just want to have joy and bring something. So I think we definitely can see the celebration shifts happening, and that sounds somewhat strange in today's current mindset. But through twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, I think there'll be a new appetite for those small moments of joy. I actually completely agree with you, Andrea. What we're seeing right now is a very different approach to um, to celebration. And actually, I was just on the phone earlier with Laura Yanaku, our senior editor of Women's Wear, and she's working on an intelligence piece at the moment about occasion wear. And obviously, occasion wear is really tied into celebration. But the way that the fashion industry works at the moment is that those celebrations are really very calendarized. And so you've got Christmas party, you've got prom, you've got weddings. And we're expecting to see a lot of um, shifts around that. But I think the important thing for us is to look at how the behaviors are changing around celebration and accept that celebration is just not going to look exactly the same. But absolutely, there still will be that desire to celebrate. And this idea that optimism kind of can't be held back, that you you kind of almost get this cooker pressure of uh, of optimism and it's got to have it, its outlet somewhere and there still will be those moments of celebration. Chess, I was speaking of Lorianico on occasion where I attended a friend's virtual wedding last week and it was still black tie so it was really interesting to see kind of everyone coming on Zoom to get dressed up and having those moments throwing you know digital rice so to speak but definitely agree. 
what we're seeing at the moment, I guess, as we move on from this, is this opportunity for people to create a better society. In a YouGov survey, only 9% of people want life to return to the way that it was before the pandemic. So my next question is, how do each of you see this evolving in terms of consumption and how people want to spend their money? I think there's a definite reprioritization of values and what you need. I think, you know, in terms of I don't want, want to use the the Marie Kondo effect. I, I think the people that were starting to do it in 2018 really saying, what do I want? What do I need? Does it spark joy? Um, do, do I essentially need this in my day to day? That was already starting to happen globally. And I think particularly around COVID and the pandemic, people are, are really looking at what values they want in life and how they want to spend with their dollars and, and where do they want that money to go. Yeah, totally agree. It's fundamentally shifted our relationship with consumption there. And, you know, I often actually cite Marie Kondo as the biggest influencer in fashion in in recent years because, you know, she forces us to really think about how we're interacting and the emotional relationship we have with our possessions and with our clothes. So, yeah, completely agree. And I'd also say, Peter, that this has a lot to do with the you know, for the fashion industry in particular, but also for other industries as well. There were so many things that were wrong with it. There were so many things that were broken and that we as a global industry were openly acknowledging were broken around seasonality and discounting and all these other things. And But it can feel so terrifying when that's the way things have always been done to genuinely shake things up and change things. And I think people as individuals or as individual businesses or even individual organisations felt quite powerless to affect change. Whereas when you're in a situation where the entire damn thing is broken and you've got an opportunity there to put it back together, not in the way that it was, but in the way that we can all now come together and uh, and put it back in a way which makes much more sense. And um, what would an industry that makes sense look like coming out of this? There's a lot of inefficiencies in fashion. It's almost like the the speed of fashion has sort of run away from us in many ways. And of course, the speed has been very tightly tied up to the idea of, you know, generating newness and profit and keeping people excited and all of those things. But actually, we, you know, we know from the amount of overstock, not just this season, but in other seasons as well, and all of the discounting that goes on, that actually there's a lot of uh, fashion product that doesn't really hit the mark. And even if it does hit the mark, and even if uh, the consumer buys it, and takes it home with them, we also know that a lot of uh, consumers have in their wardrobes a lot of clothes that they really felt were going to work for them, but they got them home and got them into their real lives. And in in the kind of cold light of day, actually, they found no occasion at all to wear them. And I think this is where we have to be um, very clear around what good value looks like to, to the consumer. So, yeah, I think putting it back together again with real efficiencies um, sort of baked into into the system. So whether that's all the insane amount of traveling that we've been doing as an industry, just, you know, it's almost in our busyness, we've kind of 
lost a, a grip on where we're truly able to make a difference um and then yeah creating those products that the consumer doesn't get home and think actually why on earth did i buy this but that there's more consideration put into the fashion industry and that's consideration at the design at the sourcing stage for the retailer for the buyer for the de- designer but also for the consumer I think it's fascinating when Chess was talking about inefficiencies just in terms of design as well. And we can see that across multiple industries. And the big one, I think, is too, is supply chain sourcing. Um, You know, even whether that's fashion or or lifestyle and interiors or beauty products for for years, we've relied on these kind of big machines. And and to Chess's point, when you're trying to turn that machine, it, it can seem mammoth. And I, the pandemic has definitely come in and said, you know, these things are possible. Um, and for a lot of companies, are, they're reallocating and going, where are we reprioritizing our own funds? So many of those luxury brands that were adamant they weren't going to sell online or they would never do e-commerce. And it wasn't, you know, while it was the sustainable option, they never wanted to touch that space because it was considered taboo. And of course, you know, since March, you can see this massive pivot towards digital. But while we're pivoting towards digital retail, PETA, and you've been tracking this in your own reports, there's also this need as what does the in-store store look like for the future? What does that mean? What is that connection? And how is that human connection um, really changing the way we prioritize and shop and what things we want from a shopping experience? So that that whole inefficiency cycle is is touching every single part of the ecosystem for retail. And it's, it's also accelerating a lot of the trends that we've talked about already. And, and both you and I have been forecasting for, for quite some time around localism and all that sort of stuff, which is really, you know, that human experience will come from elsewhere. Um, but to go back to something, Francesca, something that you said, um, and it's made me think a lot about what this opportunity could look like for designers in a really positive sense, because, you know, you start to think about why people go into design and, and they it's because they want to craft things that are useful or that people love. And this is almost like you're resetting the calendar and you're resetting the system in a way that really drives us back to that that situation where, where designers are designing for those purposes. Is that fair? Would you Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure a lot of the people who will be listening to this podcast will be able to identify with that the the treadmill and the amount of designs that as an industry we're having to turn out now um, doesn't allow for real consideration in the design process and whether you're working for a big box retailer or a supplier or if you know even if you're uh you know alessandro michaeli you know he's basically coming out and saying the same thing right it's like i've got too many collections that i've got to to deliver in a year and and really in order to be able to um to design thoughtfully and to explore the creativity around it giving yourself a bit of space to do that can only be a positive thing. And, and that's a positive thing for, for everybody, whether, whether you're a retailer or a manufacturer or a designer or a, or a consumer. I think Lisa White, who's our creative director and, uh, and head of, uh, sorry, director of Lifestyle Interiors, she has a great quote about, you know, changing systems, not just stuff. And I think it's fascinating to what, to what Chess is saying about just the shift from when you even think about design, it's not just the actual products. You know, we think about packaging and sustainability. How are we redesigning hang tags? What are, what are the small things from design, again, that we just keep 
pushing out and pushing out and pushing out because it's always part of the process. So whether it's fashion products or, you know, sustainable materials or how we're actually messaging and talking, these are all moments that we're fundamentally have the ability right now to take that pulse and say, how do we redesign it? What is the new system? Let's quit focusing on stuff and really put our energy into these new ways of working and living. And this makes me so excited about what we do every day. Um, but um, if we were to think sort of more extensively about this and, and, and really focus this around sustainability, I guess, um, because I think that that is one of the things that we kind of start dropping back to this conversation always ends up falling back towards something that is more sustainable. What should our fashion industries be doing in this sort of pause period to build towards a more sustainable period, a future? A lot of our fashion clients are already well on their way and have set themselves some very clear goals and are already the wheels are very much in motion there. And, you know, I, I do get asked this question quite a lot. You know, how how important is sustainability in this um, in this new sort of future that we're looking at? And of course, it's as important in many ways it's more important because you don't want to solve for one crisis and then just find yourself in the midst of another <laughs> and i think for for us as forecasters you know we spend a lot of our time thinking about the implications of uh of people um of all of the different impacts that we're going to have as societies and as individuals and so we see very clearly the impact of um of the environmental crisis and we can see with real clarity because uh because of the amount of forecasting uh research that we do quite how critical that is and the imperative really is to rebuild the system so that it uh, it addresses both the um post-coronavirus consumer attitude and the changes, the fundamental changes in the way that we live our lives, as well as making it more sustainable. You know, it, it would be sort of ridiculous in many ways to, to not address both of those things in tandem. So if we were to jump forward a year, maybe two years from now, we've moved through the crisis of the pandemic, we've moved through the next normal and maybe the normal after and life is looking some version of normal again. And we were looking back towards now and the things that businesses could have done to create a positive future. What would the future look like two years from now if we've done the right things and what things should we have done now to get there? Fundamentally, if we're looking two years ahead and saying, how are we rebuilding these systems? It's it's looking at our, our employees, our own staff. And I know that's become quite apparent for, for a lot of people across the globe. We're looking at uh, what's, what does a value to people that work? How are we compensating fairly? And what are those essential workers? So I think from a very fundamental um, you know, human point, an empathetic point, I hope in two years from now we, we realize, you know, and celebrate and also reward hard work for everyone across, you know, whether it's the the cashier at the local retail location to the person delivering, you know, your safety materials, your new sustainable hangers, these kinds of fundamental um, employees that, uh, due to the pandemic, have really been brought to light. You know, it's uh, we've we've all seen the memes, but the people that are really having a lifeline for us are, you know, everyone from delivery to janitors, to, you know, 
um, it's, it's shifted. So I think two years from now, I hope fundamentally that's where we're at. And I think the second one is really taking a look at rebuilding community and what that means. Um, I'm sure everyone listening has started to know their neighbors more, um, have engaged more with people in their building or their neighborhood more than pre-pandemic. And I hope that continues and that we continue to, in a very utopian Sorry, I'm, I'm from Southern California, so a very utopian hippie vibe. I hope we can continue to focus on our local communities and that will have a wider impact. Yeah, well, you know, Andrea, you're right. And as somebody who's from London, where, <laughs> where we, you know, we don't talk to people on the public transport, uh, I, you know, I think that it has totally shifted our relationship with one another. And one of the most important things for us to consider out of the back of that is how do we um, how do we transfer that positive feedback loop that we're getting from the uh, the improved connections with our family, with our friends and with our local community? Um, how do we translate that over to uh, to product because product has been very much driven by um, the the sort of short term emotional hit that you get from product that that kind of I want it now buy it now regret it later and all of that kind of language which we know doesn't bring us lasting happiness <laughs> but you know there is still hope for products that do bring us lasting happiness right and we've talked a lot and I know that the two of you have, have certainly written quite a lot in in uh, the recent past about um, products with purpose and the idea that when you're buying something you are also contributing because it's so powerful the the uh, the emotional um, connection that you get from being able to help other people and being able to contribute to something being able to contribute to a higher purpose like these are all really strong emotional drivers and so buying products which have this aspect of altruism in them I, I think it is is going to be so critical and then I guess for me it, you know at its most simple what I hope that we land on is a deeper and better connection between us as people and the products that we buy and the products that we own. And, and you know, as Andrea says, you know, that we have more awareness of all of the people who have contributed to that, all of the people who made that product come about and that we don't kind of... Um, you know, sort of cover them up in this kind of the uh, the opacity of the supply chain. But once we get true transparency, that we understand the human aspect of that, and that and that enriches the products, and it enriches the uh, the relationship that we have with them. I would. One of the things that I think is fascinating in the U.S. chess is with when you just said, you know, we we have this awareness now, we can see it. And if you look at all the news stories and, you know, whether it's Seattle or Paris or London, all of the, the local shops and retail locations having boards on them and being boarded up and people every day saying, you know, I walk by that now and I realize that it's not just a store, it's a neighbor, that that's their job, that's their lifeline, that's their retirement. So in a strange way, not being able to go in and have those daily interactions have make us so much aware of how critical those stores are and those restaurants and pubs are, are to our community. And so I think even more so in 2022, 
We're going to be really excited to see when those open. Oh my God, we're going to be so grateful for the first time that we get to go into a pub and sit at the bar. <laughs> my relationship with that first drink is, is going to be deep. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to go into a restaurant and eat a meal. Um, but <laughs> what, what one thing should businesses be doing from both a short-term and long-term perspective to create a more optimistic future for their consumers and for their business as well? I'd say using the time that has been sort of forced upon us. And I completely appreciate that not everybody in uh, businesses, there are a lot of people in businesses who are still absolutely up against it, trying to rephase products and, you know, and all of those challenges. But really, you know, using this moment to stop, think, reset. And a lot of uh, a lot of businesses are reducing the amount of SKUs that they have. I think to uh, to look at that, what whatever SKUs you have left in your kind of reduced offering to really make sure that those are working hard to really think about the consumer and how they're going to interact with your product, what it is in terms of their lifestyle and how they're going to use that product. But also think about what value looks like to the consumer as well. So uh, value has, has really kind of uh, become shorthand for for low price and we need to think about what good value really looks like to the consumer is it something that they're going to be able to uh, to get a lot of joy from in, in a kind of Marie Kondo style is it something they're going to be able to get a lot of wear out of the idea of cost per wear as a new metric going forward I think is a really compelling one so I would really encourage businesses at this time to really reassess Assess what the um, what the, the value looks like and and where you feel like you're um, you're streamlining and and sort of trimming uh, things down in order to keep costs low. Does your consumer really want low costs or do they really want um, a very well considered product that's going to fit with their lifestyle and that they're going to be able to get a lot of wear out of? These are quite fundamental questions that we need to, to ask ourselves. And the other thing I think that they need to do is just stop and check in with your consumer don't assume that you know who they are because they've just been through a massive <laughs> life-changing event, right? And, uh, you know, don't assume that their uh, online shopping habits are the same. Don't assume that their priorities are the same. Don't assume, actually, you know, we're going into a big recession. And I know this is a podcast about optimism, so I'll try not to dwell on this too much. <laughs> but <laughs> but don't assume that their, their spending power is going to be the same either. Um, you know, you do need to go go back and sort of check in on that consumer uh you know i can thoroughly recommend the uh, future consumer uh, 2022 uh, by andrea bell actually if you want a little, a little more reading on that <laughs> well i think chess's point about values is critical too because it's not just the value of the product and the cost per wear it's also time for companies to really sit down and go okay where are we putting our money where are we prioritizing. And while we can sit here and go, okay, great, how do we do this? And, and to Chester's point, let's address the elephant room. There is a recession coming for. We know that a lot of com companies globally are taking cost-cutting measures, but while we're cutting these costs, 
what are we investing in for the next two, three years? Um, you know, what is, is that sustainable, sustainable materials and fabrics? Is that how we're speaking again, you know, that, that client feedback loop and that consumer feedback loop that Chess mentioned, you know, this is the time, you know, we're all sitting here wanting to speak, wanting to engage, wanting to reset, re- renew things. So taking the opportunity right now to say, how are we, how are our customers shopping now? What do they want in two to five years? It's going to continuously shift. Um, so I think just having the mindset of BAU and we'll just be cash conservative isn't going to help you in three to five years. But saying as a team, as a design team, as a marketing team, as an in-house strategic team, saying how all three of us can alive to reprioritize what we want to do as a brand and how does that flood to design communications and at the end of the day, creating those products with purpose for consumers. I'm so grateful that you've made the time to talk about this really important topic. So thank you so much, Andrea and Cheska. I'm feeling really optimistic now too. And thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please subscribe to us. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. And if you really like what you heard, then please leave us a rating or a review. It really does help us get the word out there. If you're interested in what we've been talking about today, then please head over to wgsn.com to find out how you can get access to much more insight and analysis. If you're already a WGSN subscriber, head over to the site where we've pulled together all of our research on how we design a better future in the current and post-COVID-19 world with key points from this podcast in one handy report. Thanks again to our guests. And I'd also like to thank our show producer, Roland Bodenham. And again, thank you for being here. Please stay well and healthy and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.